KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Hey, Kinsey, KPBS podcast coordinator here with a quick announcement. Beginning today, we are changing the name of the San Diego News Matters podcast to San Diego News Now. We were concerned that the name sounded derivative of the Black Lives Matter movement, and we didn't want to sound like our name was competing in any way. This transition should be seamless for listeners, and our hope is that the change will be reflected everywhere, including podcatchers, over the next few days. Okay, on to the show. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Monday, December 14th. How do hospitals direct resources when ICU capacity starts to dwindle? We'll have a conversation with the leader of Sharp Healthcare. But first, let's do the headlines. With the Pfizer vaccine now approved for emergency use, doses are expected to arrive at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego and the Naval Hospital in Camp Pendleton this week. Meanwhile, county health officers reported more than 2,400 new COVID-19 infections on Sunday and 11 new deaths. Sunday was the fifth day in a row that more than 2,000 cases were reported. Federal officials say restrictions on non-essential travel between the U.S. and Mexico will stay in place until January 21st because of COVID-19. That means businesses in San Isidro who rely on cross-border traffic for their busiest time of the year will suffer through the holiday season. Retail stores are still open in San Isidro with limited indoor capacity. The San Diego Sheriff's Department has backed off of a policy of publicly posting the release dates of people in its custody. Immigrant advocates say the information was being used by Immigration and Customs Enforcement to help it arrest immigrants for possible deportation. They've lobbied against the policy for years, and Sheriff Bill Gore pledged in a November hearing to look into the practice. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. As COVID-19 cases climb, hospital resources are shrinking. So what do hospitals do at that point? How do they decide what gets resources and what doesn't? KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento spoke with the leader at Sharp Healthcare in San Diego to find out. She spoke with Sharp's chief operating officer, Brett McLean. Here's that interview. 
there's a lot of concern if there will be enough resources to go around. So just tell me what it's like managing resources in your facilities right now. Without the incredible analytic support that we have in, in particular at Sharp, uh, we would not have been able to uh, weather this uh, as good as we have. We manage on literally sometimes an hourly basis uh, the human resource needs that we have, which are really the most stretched of all. Uh, we manage the bed capacity and the type of beds, uh, whether those are uh, uh, typical med surge uh, hospital beds or ICUs, uh, et cetera. We manage the uh, incoming uh, volume that will normally come through our emergency rooms and our trauma, uh, trauma rooms every single uh, day. Uh, and we manage the supplies. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we have certainly learned uh, during COVID is that the PPE that you hear about, protective uh, equipment, has really changed uh, and uh, become uh, uh, something that uh, really uh, has adapted uh, to the pandemic as well. So we now do things differently than we did 10 months ago uh, in terms of the use of masks and the use of uh, uh, ventilators and the use of the all the protective equipment that our staff uses. Uh, so it is uh, uh, really a throughput work, really an engineering feat, uh, and we just have uh, super talented folks uh, managing this on a daily basis. Several reporters were asking the county um, during their news briefing, you know, how will decisions be made when we have more need than we have staff space equipment? So who is the authority on making those decisions? Is it you? Does it come down to you? Right now, uh, the direction that's coming down from uh, the state uh, is that we're not under that order to stop all uh, non-COVID cases, right? So every health system uh, comes together on their own uh, and makes decisions on uh, on the specifics. Uh, we at Sharp are lucky enough to have you know multiple sites and uh, multiple different. Uh, uh, places that we can provide different lo levels of care. So we're making decisions on a daily basis to move patients from one hospital to another, if there's room and space, in order to manage you know, our COVID population uh, as well as our non-COVID population. So that is something that we uh, that we do on a daily basis and I'm absolutely involved in that. We, we actually have a small team that meets twice a day uh, uh, clinical leadership at each of our facilities uh, every morning at 7.30 and every afternoon at 5 uh, to talk about what's going on right now, what can we do within the system, what do we need to do uh, to find more resources uh, uh, that one place might have versus another. Uh, and then we make decisions uh, moving forward for the next day or the next week. You are, though, just uh, many facilities, but just one healthcare system in San Diego. Um, and so responding to the need does go beyond sharp. How are decisions on resource allocation at other facilities, their system, just like you described, affecting sharp? Yeah. Well, I will say uh, uh, one of the silver linings in all of this uh, uh, has been, I think, the incredible partnership uh, that has uh, furthered among our uh, other healthcare uh, systems here in, uh, in San Diego. Uh, while Sharp is the leading uh, provider uh, in San Diego, there are other uh, very substantial uh, uh, 
uh, systems as well. We actually communicate every single day, seven days a week together on what our uh, volumes are, what our, uh, what we've found in terms of testing, what those rates are. We take a look at, boy, is there something happening with both us and scripts maybe in the South Bay at Chula Vista? We look at that, we communicate that back and forth. Uh, and so that, uh, that, uh, that, that partnership has really helped us uh, to identify where some peaks and valleys may be coming, uh, but it also allows us where, where possible to move patients within facilities as well. It's uh, uh, not a common every single day thing, but it does happen uh, and we work together based on you know, what, those, uh, what those volumes are telling us that we need to do. So that process has been fantastic. And it's actually, again, I feel fortunate to have started uh, during this because I've been kind of thrust in and be able to see and learn and, and see the incredible work that Sharp does, but also the incredible work that our community has done to come together. Have you had any trouble with other facilities taking patients when requested for a transfer? Now, I, I would say uh, uh, to date, uh, the issues around any type of difficulty in transferring has really not been a space issue. Uh, we have the ability to surge up uh, and we could add IC bed, we can add other beds. The, the, the significant issue is staffing. Uh, and we're all dealing with the same issues of, uh, you know, uh, the same uh, uh, pools of staff uh, that are exhausted, uh, that uh, are working uh, like I have just never seen anybody uh, uh, work before. It's just amazing uh, to spend time uh, at the front lines and just watch and observe what's happening. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, dwindling pools of traveler nurses because the whole country's uh, going through the same issue, right? So there's uh, certainly a lot of uh, competitiveness, if you will, and, and different rates and all of that. So uh, that is uh, pulling uh, some staff uh, into other areas. Uh, but it really is around uh, staffing. That's that's the issue. So if we have the difficulty maybe accepting a patient that needs a transfer, it's not uh, to date. It's not because of space. It's because of not having the appropriate right kind of staffing. And maybe we need another five, six hours to fix that to be able to, to move on. And I would say that's the case for everybody. When you're trying to transfer somebody out, have you had to, um, have you been told no? It's the same issue. It's been delayed. Uh, it's never been a no just because we're not going to take it. It's been no, hey, you know, I've got in, in about, you know, maybe tomorrow I'll have, you know, a, a, an open room or, an, you know, staff available to take it. Uh, there's really never been a, a no. It really just doesn't happen. Uh, it happens, uh, you know, based on the capacity of the staffing right now. Is there risk to the patient with that delay? Well, you know, the patient is still typically in uh, another, you know, care facility uh, and we have, you know, let's say, uh, uh, you know, uh, in our emergency room, we may have an ICU patient that's in there uh, that's been deemed to be when we find a bed will be an ICU patient, but we still have, you know, significant uh, resources in the, in the emergency room. 
uh, from staffing and the doctors uh, and uh, all of that to care for that patient in a, in a very similar way that they would be cared for on the on the ICU. Uh, but it's going to delay things. It's going to delay you know other patients that are coming in. They'll have to wait longer. It will you know the system will just get slower and slower you know because of that. Uh, but it, it is the thing that keeps me up right now is uh, capacity and uh, the ability to have enough staff to care uh, for these patients, which is why uh, we are just in this window right now of the ability to uh, bend this curve down uh, again. I, I really feel that we have, uh, you know, at least probably three tough months ahead of us. Uh, but we can make those three months better uh, by right now, today, changing our behaviors, changing the way in which we uh, uh, spend time with each other uh, and, uh, you know, uh, wear a darn mask. But we have heard um, from projections presented at a county board meeting that by Christmas we will be full. Is that the impression you're operating under as well? Yeah, I am uh, operating under both uh, that as a major fear uh, that it's going to get worse. And I'm also operating under uh, the hope uh, that uh, we bend that curve together uh, and do the things that we need to do to uh, uh, make these next uh, couple months uh, as uh, good as they can be. Uh, but it is my biggest fear. I, you know, I, I uh, live not too far. We're uh, in an apartment near uh, the UTC mall. Uh, and I will tell you over Thanksgiving, I was not happy uh, by what I saw. It just, uh, it looked like any other holiday weekend, people from out of town, uh, many without masks, uh, very unfortunate and very disturbing. When then, you know, I go back to that call at the end of the day and hear about the numbers that have gone up and the staff that are just working so hard and, and uh, caring for everybody's families. Uh, uh, in all times, uh, and including right now, probably the, the worst time in, in healthcare history. Uh, and so it's very, very uh, disappointing. Uh, I will say just generally overall since Thanksgiving, uh, my uh, observation, and it's, I'm an I'm a observation of one, uh, it does seem to be uh, better uh, in terms of people wearing masks, in terms of people staying apart. Uh, the traffic seems uh, better. It, you know, it kind of got back to normal there for a while, unfortunately. Traffic seems a little bit better. So I'm hopeful, uh, but we have to prepare for the worst. And so that's, uh, that's the work that we do every day. What is the worst? I think the worst is that, you know, hospitals are full. Uh, and when you say that again, I mean that from both the space as well as a uh, resource or a staff perspective uh, that we are uh, having to enact some of our uh, federal uh, help, if you will, for some of the, you know, uh, other sites, uh, the mobile sites, tents, uh, uh, things like that, uh, that we will have more and more delayed care, meaning people won't go to the hospital when they have that first uh, uh, twinge of chest pain, right? Uh, that's super dangerous. That is not uh, that is not what we need to be doing. If you if you have if you need care, you need to get it. Uh, and all of our hospitals have divided up our uh, emergency rooms to be able to care for COVID and non-COVID uh, patients. Uh, so it is safe to get care. Uh, but that's on my list of things uh, of the worst is that those you know that stuff still happens. People still have heart attacks. They still get in car accidents. They still have strokes, uh, and we need to care uh, for those patients as we do now. Um, so that, that's, that's the picture I hope we don't see. 
That was Sharp COO Brett McLean speaking with KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento. How do you take an organization that relies on people coming together and then keep it going during a time when people can't come together? In this pandemic profile, KPBS reporter John Carroll talks to the leader of San Diego's largest Muslim congregation to see how they're making it through the crisis. God can be worshipped anywhere on earth. That statement by Imam Taha Hassan could probably be agreed to by just about every religious leader on the planet. But of course, when you're talking about organized religion, it's not quite that simple. Hassan leads the Islamic Center of San Diego and Claremont, the city's largest Muslim congregation. At the very beginning, we had no idea about what's going on and how we should operate. What Hassan did know back then was the mosque portion of the Islamic Center, the large prayer hall, could not be used. So like countless other members of the clergy, he had to figure out how to take things online with some help. Thank God we have smart people in the community, uh, young people who are into this technology, and in a matter of few days, they came together and they installed all this system, the online system. But now, with vaccines expected to be distributed soon, Hassan is looking to the future when his entire congregation can once again fill this hallowed space. John Carroll, KPBS News. The COVID-19 pandemic hit California's state budget hard, but not as hard as predicted. As it turns out, tax collections from the state's wealthiest residents are higher than anticipated, producing an unexpected windfall of around $26 billion next year. The legislature has a long list of ways they can spend that money. Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon reports. This year's budget deficit forced lawmakers to make deep cuts to health programs and skip payments to schools. Assembly Budget Chairman Phil Ting says he wants to restore that funding for the fiscal year starting next summer. The San Francisco Democrat also proposes using some of the windfall to get money into the pockets of Californians who need it most. So it's making sure that they're they're getting their unemployment checks. It's making sure that those that don't qualify are getting earned income tax credit or um, also, the students who need uh, additional financial aid are getting financial aid. Other funding priorities include homelessness and wildfire mitigation. But Ting didn't say how much they want to spend on each item. In Sacramento, I'm Nicole Nixon. Wildfires this year burned about a third of the habitat of Earth's giant sequoia trees. That's all from one complex of fires still burning near Sequoia National Park. Scientists say as many as 1,000 of the biggest sequoias could be incinerated. Kristen Shive is with Save the Redwoods League. We just didn't think that quite could happen. And so it made us realize that we are really in a crisis situation. Fast forward to 2020, and I am kind of blown away at the extent of high severity fire. On top of the acreage burned, scientists realized a native bark beetle is beginning to harm the iconic species. This insect is different from the one that killed pine trees during the last drought. Coming up, local researchers say plants are becoming more of an option to help ease climate change. That's up next, just after this break. 
KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. San Diego researchers think plants may offer a significant way to draw down excess carbon emissions in the air. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has the story. Greenhouse manager McKenna Hopwood opens a door to what she jokingly calls the meat locker. Okay, there we go. Bags of drying plants, both stalks and roots, hang from the ceiling like slabs of meat in a cooler. But of course, they're plants. So um, these have all been root washed and then processed, and then they've been drying for about a week. Um, Depending on the crop, we'll dry them for about a week to two weeks, and then we'll throw them in the plant drying oven for a day or two, and then we'll do our biomass weights. This is the final stop for plants raised in the salt greenhouse. Hopwood is constantly growing several different plant species here. Um, Some plants don't really like to be watered from the top, and these ones are really sensitive. So if they have soil that gets um, tossed into the middle of the plant, they won't produce their flower. Some of these plants grow fast, seed to harvest in a few months. Others are crop plants like corn, soybeans, and wheat. Add in sorghum, rice, and canola, and that's most of the popular food crops grown in the world. Total plant acreage is about the size of India. One of the biggest challenges, we think, and the biggest threat um, for um, humanity is the climate crisis. Wolfgang Busch is looking for ways to make these widely used plants a lot better at moving carbon from the air and storing it deeper in the ground. He's using millions of dollars in grants to develop longer and deeper root systems. And they are the key to storing carbon that the burning of fossil fuels spews into the air. And we're trying to find... Um, um, mechanisms, genetic recipes, if you want, so to actually make better plants or make plants better in storing larger amounts of carbon underground for longer in the soil. Bush hopes to find the right combination of gene manipulation and breeding and the transfer of desirable traits from other plants to make those six crops better at carbon sequestration. Bush says they represent a short-term answer to a long-term problem. And there are currently only uh, actually no really scalable methods to draw down carbon dioxide except from plants. So if you think about this in the long run, this technology will enable a carbon drawdown um, that is really urgently needed to get back to uh, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere that are safe for us. But the clock is ticking. The planet's average temperature continues to climb at dramatic rates. Bush says it'll still be about five years before he's likely to develop the plants that he's confident will help. It could be 15 years before enough of those plants are planted to make a difference. I think we can, but we're really right on the edge. Salk researcher Joanne Corey says temperatures are rising because people push more carbon dioxide into the air than what the planet can handle. She understands the urgency, but remains hopeful. So you don't have to fix everything in the climate. You only have to get those 18 gigatons that the Earth can't deal with. That's a small part of what plants push them on on a regular 
seasonal basis, right? They're pushing around more like 800 gigatons. Corey thinks plants can pull about four gigatons of that extra carbon out of the air and put it into the soil. Building out more renewable energy and making cars electric could help too, but those transitions will take time. Corey thinks developing plants that can move the carbon out of the plant sugars and into non-biodegradable polymers buried deep in roots could buy some time until other solutions come along. So I'll take some wheat right here. It's been growing a little long. McKenna Hopwood is spending that time in search of a scalable solution in the salt greenhouse. And then you just take this guy, transplant it in. But success here and in the lab will have to be duplicated on a global scale. Researchers are confident the science will help them improve the plants, but they don't share that optimism about governments and farmers who will have to implement the solution before the climate gets too warm. That was KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. And for our arts segment today, News of the World stars Tom Hanks as a Civil War veteran. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando says the film will be released to theaters on Christmas, and it's being packaged as an Oscar hopeful. News of the World is set five years after the Civil War has ended. Tom Hanks plays veteran Jefferson Kyle Kidd. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, and I'm here tonight to read the news from across this great world of ours. There are elements of news of the world that could have resonated today. Kidd is traveling through an America that's still painfully divided in the aftermath of war. He sometimes crosses paths with people who don't want to hear enlightening news from other places, but rather only news from their own insular community. It's also interesting to have someone reading newspapers and holding listeners wrapped with news presented as engaging stories. But instead of focusing on these aspects, director Paul Greengrass focuses on Kidd's task of delivering a young girl raised by the Kiowa tribe to her only living relatives. Says your name is Johanna Leonberger. Indians took you when they attacked your family six years prior. Her mother, father, and sister were... Well, they passed. Greengrass addresses some of the same issues raised by the classic Western The Searchers, but sadly, none of the more interesting ones. At this particular moment in time, a film looking to a Civil War vet traveling through the South with a white girl teaching us lessons about Native Americans just feels a bit out of touch, especially when the writing is so mundane and the plot so blandly formulaic. Beth Accomando, KPBS News. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.